Just going to let Penny back in the car because I think you're going back in the car. I think she's knackered. Have you lost your tennis ball? Where's your tennis ball? <laughs> this week on Walking the Door, I travelled up to Perthshire in Scotland to go for a walk with legendary tennis coach, Strictly Come Dancing favourite, and oh yes, mother to a tennis player you might have heard of, Andy Murray. Judy Murray invited me to stay for the night in the Cromlix Hotel near Dunblane, which is owned by Andy himself, and it's absolutely beautiful. Frankly, they had me at Dog Friendly. Judy brought along her dad's dog, a black retriever called Penny. She was adorable. And Judy was a fascinating walking companion. We chatted about the competitive family spirit instilled in her by her dad, actually. The moment that she first really noticed that Andy had inherited that unusually strong will to compete and what it felt like to be scrutinised suddenly as a female public figure, and also coping after the tragedy of Dunblane. Judy was such lovely company. Can I say she was always my favourite on Strictly? And I really respected how she's managed to give her children both roots and wings. I really hope you enjoy my chat with Judy, and do go and visit Cromlix. Ray and I are moving in. Sorry, Andy. We'll just have to deal with it. Enough of me. Here's Judy. Gorgeous. That wasn't me talking to Judy. Although okay. she does look gorgeous, can I say? She is. She's a black retriever, which is quite unusual. And she loves a tennis ball. She's a very <laughs> brand-friendly, Murray family-friendly <laughs> dog. I mean, she turned up with the ball in her mouth. I'm so excited. I'm with someone I've been a huge fan of for a long time. The very wonderful Judy Murray. And we're with... We're at the Cromlix Hotel, which is breathtakingly beautiful. And is it fair to say it's a Murray family business, Judy? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, um, it's Andy's hotel, um, and we've had it for about five and a half years yeah. now. There's a chapel here. It's so lovely, and it's dog-friendly. Can I just say, if you've got a dog, <laughs> my dog has been there's a Rue restaurant here isn't there yeah and, yeah um, there was a dog menu <laughs> well Albert Rue comes up here quite regularly to train the staff to change the menus um, and so forth and when he comes up he always brings his dog and he's got a chocolate brown uh, Labrador and so he's the dog always stays with him so we are very much um, a dog friendly hotel in every sense can you introduce me to your dog formally because we met <laughs> She, I should say, came bounding towards me with a tennis ball in her mouth, of course. And what's her name again? Penny. Penny. She, because she's black, Penny Black. Oh. Yeah, my mum and dad thought that was terribly clever. I'm not so <laughs> sure. But yeah, she's a, she's a great dog. She needs a lot of walking. And my dad is quite infirm now. Yeah. So coming up here where there's acres of woodland, there's a fishing loch, you know, there's gorgeous paths and he brings the ball or he picks up sticks and she kind of exercises herself a How lot because she Penny? will chase. She's uh, eight. She's a lady her age, but <laughs> we're in the feminist days now, it's okay. She's eight, she looks yeah. good on it. She does, doesn't she? I had one person on my podcast and I said, they said, oh, I said, how old's your dog? They said, four. And I said, oh, she looks a bit older. <laughs> and it took him a few minutes and he said, I'm, I'm kind of offended that you said my dog looked old. <laughs> That's quite funny, isn't it? I mean, yeah, well, who thinks about that with the age of the dog? It was brilliant. So, this is your land, currently. Yeah. 
So no one can tell us if Penny does a poo, I'm afraid you're just going to have to accept it. This is Judy's manner. <laughs> um, yeah. So tell me about when you were growing up. I know Andy's got, I think he's got border terriers, is that right? Yeah, Andy has two border terriers, um, yeah. Maggie and Rusty. I think Maggie's about 11 now. Um, she's actually Kim's dog. Kim got her for her 21st birthday from her parents. Oh. And Rusty came along, they, they got Rusty about three years three yeah. years later. Yeah. Um, and I had always grown up with big dogs. We always had golden had retrievers. So I thought they're not proper dogs because they're too small. <laughs> and I absolutely love them now. Oh, you really? know, I adore them. They're fantastic little characters. So they oh. go absolutely nuts when, when I go to visit because I always take them for a walk. And I think dogs always sense when people are comfortable with them. And That's they true, equate yeah. me with taking them for a walk. <laughs> This is so stuck. Judy's looking a bit like, yeah, this is Scotland. It. <laughs> yeah, it's when it's your backyard, you're kind of used to it. And, uh, Will you describe <clears> this to me? Because this to me is paradise. Yeah, we're just on a little, uh, a little walk to the fishing loch, which oh. obviously is on the estate of the hotel. And uh, it's beautifully peaceful. It's, you know, there are times when we have swans and baby swans on it, and the swans get very protective when the dog is around. But Penny loves the water, so chucking the ball into the water, she will exhaust herself chasing after it. So is she going to go in? Yeah, she'll, she'll go in and she'll, she would do this for hours and hours and hours. She absolutely loves swimming. And we've got a beautiful day for it because um, it's nice and crisp. Penny! <laughs> so when she comes out of the water and shakes herself, you need to keep a, a respectable distance, otherwise you get soaked. <laughs> but you know what I've noticed, Judy, since I've become a dog owner? is that I've got far less concern, which has been a positive thing, I think, about, for example, mud on my clothes or... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just, I just think... Um, I went to a dinner recently and everyone said, what's that musty smell? And then I realised it was me because I had lamb treats in my bag from my dog <laughs> and they leaked all over my gosh. designer handbag. <laughs> oh, Watch out. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Penny, is that nice? Did you enjoy that? She loves it and she'll, she will take the ball and she'll carry it until she's ready to put it down. And when she puts it down, that means she's ready for you to throw it again. So she's very much in charge of her walk, aren't you? <laughs> aren't you, Penny? Oh, there's the swans. So there's swans down there. So we need to go up this way, Penny. Okay. This way. Oh, this way. So we need to avoid the swans. Yeah, they'll get they'll get very protective of yeah. the dog being in the in the water. So you, when you were growing up, you didn't grow up too far from here, did you? No, we're just a few just a few miles away in, in Dunblane. Yeah. And Cromlex, the the hotel, would be the special place in the area that you'd go for, you know, an occasion. So. Jamie was married here, in the chapel here, and uh, my mum and dad had their silver wedding, their golden wedding, my twin nieces were christened in the chapel. So, you know... Judy, be honest, you just got this place because you didn't bother <laughs> to hire anyone for these family <laughs> occasions. I know your game. No, yeah, well, <laughs> it had been a hotel for, I think, the best part, maybe a little bit more than 30 years, and then the owners who owned the whole estate, you yeah. know, it was a family estate, they didn't want to run it as a hotel, they didn't want to lease it as a hotel anymore, and they, it, it, they hadn't invested in it for quite a long time, so it was yeah, becoming a bit tired yeah. and it needed a, a, a big sort of makeover, and they, anyway, they put it on the market, and um, 
Andy decided that he would like to buy it. And I said to him, this, uh, this is quite a funny story. Um, the guy, the agent who was, who was in charge of selling it, yeah. um, he came into my brother's optical practice in Dunblane and said, gave his card in and said, just to let you know, Cromlex is about to go on the market. If the family's interested, you know, let us know before it goes on the market. So, so my brother, um, I, I happened to see my brother that day and he gave me the card, told me the story. And I happened to be on the phone to Andy that night and it would be unusual for me to see my, my brother, yeah. you know, during the day anyway. And actually also very unusual for Andy to phone because like most boys, <laughs> you'll ping you a message or whatever. It's usually just phone if something's wrong. So I'm thinking, what's oh, the matter? Mom. <laughs> uh, so I said to him, oh, by the way, um, Cromlex is going on the market. And he went, oh, I'd quite like to buy that. And I went, what? And I went, no, you wouldn't. I said, it's, it's far too big and it's falling to bits. And I said, nobody lives in houses like that anymore. And he goes, no, 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 not to live there. We could run it as a hotel. And I went, we don't know anything about running <laughs> hotels. And he goes, no, but you could find out. So suddenly we became you. And he said, go and have a look at it, Mum. Go and yeah. have a look at it. Oh, wow. And I came out to have a look at it. And really the hotel was falling to bits. Yeah. And so I completely did my best to put him off. I yeah, said, no, say thanks, Andy. There's a... Uh, it needs far too much work. It's freezing cold. There's bats flying around in the in the library, and I went, "No, you definitely don't want." And he was adamant that he wanted to buy it. So that that started us on a, a chain of finding somebody, a management company that yeah. that managed these kind of country hotels, and them letting us look at one of their other hotels and showing us what it could look like if it was invested in, and yeah. blah blah blah. And I went up to look at. Inverlochy Castle Hotel. Um, so I do it now, Judy. Look, yeah, she's go for it. Like, yeah. Penny! She's going, get on with it. Oh, no. Somebody new to throw the ball. <laughs> so yeah, when I, went, when I went up to Inverlochy Castle and spent a couple of days up there, I could see what Cromlex could look like if it was all renovated and done up. And um, anyway, and Andy did you decided to go for it. Oh, well, I'm very glad you did. I'm not moving out, by the way. I'm here now. <laughs> um, can I talk to you a bit about your childhood then? Because you had dogs when you were younger. With, is yeah. it Roy and Eileen? Have I got that right? Shirley. Oh, Shirley. Yeah, she's actually Eileen Shirley. Eileen uh, Shirley, but, okay. Um, Shirley she's, is what she's So Shirley and Roy. Yeah. I love it. I love those names. <laughs> They're very of an era, aren't they? Like, yeah. yeah. And um, your dad was an optician. Yep. And your mum, well, she ran a toy shop at one point. She did, yeah. They're very community people, my, yeah. my parents. And uh, so my dad had an optical practice. His first optical practice was in Dunblane in the high street when I was about six. Yeah. And he kind of built a little business where he ended up with four shops in, in local towns. Um, so he, he, did a really, he did a really good job. And, but my mum my was... She basically looked after the, the three of us. And then when we got to a stage where we were all a little bit older, maybe sort of high schoolish yeah. age, um, my dad bought another shop in the high street and my mum and her friend ran it as a toy shop because she said, Dumbly needs a toy shop. <laughs> she would never say, no, I'm sorry, we don't stock that or we don't have that. She'd say, oh, I can get that for you. And she'd actually get in her car and drive to Stirling and buy it at Woolworths and, and come back and sell it to them for no profit <laughs> whatsoever, just so that she was doing them a service. So It was interesting because your dad was a former footballer, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, yeah. And 
I was really fascinated by that idea of competitive, and I mean that in a healthy sense, you know, not in a negative way, but just that you had that. I think that's very common in sort of sporting families, that everything, whether it's a board game or yeah. it's, come on, let's, let's have a good go at this, you know. Yeah, definitely the competitive spirit in the family it came down through my through my dad's side. Yeah. I mean, he was the bad loser type of competitor, which I am and which Andy also is. Um, J- Jamie more, he's very competitive, but he's more like my he's more like my mum. My mum was one of these people who. You know, when I played tennis with her at the local club, when I was little, I got the chance to play in the ladies' team, and a few times I got to play with my mum. Yeah. And she would always say, oh, bad luck, or oh, good shot, you know, to the opposition, stuff like that. And I'd say, why do you keep saying good shot to them? And she would say, well, she's just being very sporting and whatever. And I would say, yeah, but you're just encouraging them to do it again. So <laughs> I was, uh, without question, my father's daughter. Yeah, I would never say good shot to anybody. Were you aware of that with Andy, that perhaps he'd respond in a more similar fashion to you so for example would he be less likely to say good shot yeah oh yeah very much so yeah I'm not so sure that Jamie did did it either but I think you know when they were young yeah they they always had each other to play with and to spar with and I think that you know for most of their childhood of course Jamie was a bit bigger and a bit stronger and of course a bit older than, than Andy so he tended to win at most things and you know I think I think having an older brother had a lot to do with Andy's kind of uber competitiveness. Do you think he so? always just wanted to beat Jamie. I mean, like, always. That was all he ever wanted to, to do, was just beat Jamie at, at anything. And it took quite a long time for him to be able to do that. But, you know, I remember um, the, the day after Andy won Wimbledon in 2013. I wish um, I could throw that in about my family members. I'm so jealous <laughs> you did. It's I quite, mean, it's quite a funny story. That's why I'm throwing it in. No, I'm so jealous. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, he, yeah. We so we're round at uh, round at Andy's house, and I was just sitting on the sofa with the dogs, watching the TV. And Jamie came round, and uh, Jamie hadn't seen Andy, you know, like just on a one-to-one basis since since he'd won. Anyway, Jamie comes in the door, and Andy goes, "Game of table tennis, Jamie." And I could tell by the way he said it. I could tell it's oh here we go again and Jamie went yeah all right so I was thinking oh no and so they went out onto the patio they start playing table tennis about five minutes later they come back in and Jamie chucks the table tennis bat across the room and he goes I'm never playing table tennis with him again and Andy's standing at the door going oh go on Jamie I'll play you with my left hand you know and it was like I was just thinking he's just won Wimbledon like, you know, first man for 70-odd years yeah. to win Wimbledon. And actually, he's so happy that he's just beaten his brother I at table tennis. <laughs> but, you know, that's what's interesting, I think. And I wonder if that's something that's just common to all people that, I suppose, want to excel, you know, is it doesn't matter whether it's a table tennis game. Yeah. Do you think that's what it is? It's kind of... They, they like the challenge of competing. Yeah. And I think if you're a, if you're a sports person you need to have that you need to enjoy that challenge because if you don't like that side of it you're never really going to buy into the the life of it and you're never really going to get to where your talent might allow you to go to so you absolutely have to enjoy competition and I think nowadays I see certainly in tennis and it's probably true in other sports there's far too much coaching now coaching has become a thing and kids get programmed into activity from a young age so you get more coaching than ever before and less kids playing the game because they don't go out and just learn for themselves and yeah so forth and i, I find that really 
quite sad. Um, so I love the fact that, you know, when I talk to people about you know, Jamie and Andy when they were small, they were always inventing competitions and their own scoring systems and their own rules. And then they would manipulate them, or Andy would usually manipulate them because he'd lost. And he would manipulate them to try and help him to win the next time. So <laughs> Yes, I love it when you see kids doing that, saying no, and sort of making up the rules. Yes, because also they got very into, Andy and Jamie got very into WWF, not the World Wildlife Fund, in case anyone's thinking. I'm afraid it was the Wrestling Federation. Yeah, they loved that, you know, when they were... I don't know, maybe somewhere between 10 and 10 and 12, 13, uh, you know, and it was such a big thing. And uh, Andy's favourite was always The Rock, and Jamie was um, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Of and course he was. <laughs> <laughs> and they would replicate all these bouts or competitions that they saw uh, on the television. And they'd go up to their, their bedroom and, you know, you'd hear this crashing and banging from upstairs. And one time I went up and the lampshade was swinging from side to side and there was a ladder, a step ladder in the corner. And there were two duvets on the floor and, um, and there's, you know, Jamie pinning Andy to the floor. And I went, what are you doing? And they said, we're having a ladder fight, you know, like as if that was the most natural thing in the world and I should know what it is. And I went, what's a ladder fight? Well, you, you wrestle and then when somebody pins him, you run up the you run up the ladder and you ring the bell. And I went, you haven't got a bell. And then I realised that's why the lampshade was swinging. But it was the creativity of, yeah. we want to do that. And we make it, we create our own game with whatever we've got. Your own childhood, I mean, you were clearly, you grew up <coughs> in a sporting family because of your dad, I suppose. And, but it, do you think it was clear from an early age that you had ability at tennis or that you had passion for it as well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was about 10 when I started. You know, back then you, you played with wooden rackets and proper tennis balls and they huge tennis court. They were wooden rackets, weren't they? Yeah, well, they were, also quite, they were quite heavy, so you really had to be about 10 or 11 before you could get started. And nowadays you can start with mini rackets and sponge balls, so you can start much younger. And, you know, I was fortunate that I had parents who played, so they got me started. And then I kind of learned how to play by play the game by playing with the older kids at the club and then with the adults. So I very much grew up in that sort of community club, community environment for both tennis and badminton because you played badminton in the winter because there was no yeah. indoor tennis courts back then. Because there was but no it must have been also, you know, unusual round here just in terms of the, the weather and all that kind of stuff. Tennis didn't have a tradition particularly, did it? In no, it was very much a minority sport in Scotland. It probably still is. And it's rich people. I yeah. don't know why, but I always associate tennis. You know, you think of the footballer or the boxing pro, and you think, right, well, they can come from what we would have called traditionally working-class families, whereas tennis... Yes, it was... It was... It's expensive. One of those sports <laughs> that people, people kind of... I think see tennis maybe in the same way as golf, difficult to do, difficult to access, yeah. time consuming and expensive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean back then it wasn't expensive to join our little community club and obviously nothing cost anything because there was no coaching, you know, just all the members of the club that taught you how to play. You played with your dad and what was he, did he do the dad thing of saying, okay, I'll let you win? No chance. 
never, never let you win anything. I mean, when we used to play football in the back garden with these kind of wooden goalposts that he had made himself, and he, was, of course, was a very good footballer. Yeah. He never let me or my brothers... Really? He hard, he certainly would never let us win. He very rarely even let us score anything past him. You continued sort of playing tennis, and you were really good at it, weren't you? And then there was something... I read about, again, in your book, about how you had this trip and you lost all your purse or your, uh, your, your bag was stolen, essentially, wasn't it? Yeah, I, um, when I left school, when I finished school, I'd made this deal with my dad that if I got the grades that I needed to go to university, yeah. that I could take um, a year to play tennis to see how good I could become. Yeah. I was one of the best juniors in Britain at that time. I was maybe about number eight <coughs> in Britain, which yeah. wasn't bad considering we had no infrastructure in Scotland and you pretty much had to learn for yourself. And were your parents encouraging of that? Did they say, right, you're good at this, you need to pursue it? Yeah, they, they, wanted, to, they wanted me to have a go at it. Yeah. But the reality of it was, you know, you really have to go out on your own and you have to go to the continent. And this is, you know, my dad ran his own business, my mum had my two brothers to look after, so I went yeah. by myself. Which, of course, back then, you're very disconnected. Planes, flights, etc. wasn't really such a big thing back then. There wasn't internet, there wasn't ATM machines, there wasn't mobile phones. So, you know, you, it was very much you in the, the phone box with the reverse the charges. Yes, yeah, and you just hoped someone was in. Yeah, I remember doing that. Although I wasn't saying I'm, I'm taking part in an international tennis tournament. I was saying I need money for cigarettes and beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, each to their own. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I went to Barcelona. I was playing a competition in Barcelona and I'd gone from the hotel in the bus into the city to pick up money at the what was called the post restaurant. It's more or less the post office. Yeah. But that's where you got money wired to. Yes. So I picked it up and I was going back to the hotel in the bus and the bus was mobbed. And when I got off the bus... I realised that my bag had been opened. It was just a kind of flap thing. And yeah. I hadn't felt a thing other than what I thought was being jostled. Because I think when you come from a very small place <laughs> where there isn't really crime and you've not been exposed to anything, you, you're trusting. And then suddenly you're in a big city and you think, huh. And of course my purse was gone. And so I, I remember sitting down on the pavement and I kept opening and closing my bag thinking, one of these times I'll open it and I'll actually be there. Yeah. And then when the reality s sinks in, you have to go into problem-solving mode, yeah. which involves finding a policeman and then finding your way to the embassy. Um, because it wasn't just my money, it was my tickets and my passport, it was kind of everything. But really... And you was how old? 16? 17. 17, God. Yeah, That's but... That's quite young to be dealing with that sort of level of stress. How do you react in situations like that? Did you have a meltdown or are you quite... No, did, I'm did quite you, good. I, did I, you I cry? Actually, no... No, well, there isn't any point in feeling sorry for yourself. You just have to go into problem-solving mode. Can you write that down on a post-it note and I'm going to stick it above <laughs> my desk every day? Because I need that, Judy. Yeah, well... What makes you cry? Like, when did you last cry, would you say? Um, you're more likely to cry at something happy, to, to be honest. Really? I think it, yeah. Do you I cry when Andy won won Wimbledon? I, I think, actually, when he, won in, when he won in Antwerp in October... I had a little cry watching that because, you know, in January we all thought it was going to, it could be the end of his career. Yeah. 
and really you, you know when you see what he's battled through to get himself back and then for him to actually go and win a tournament again was just remarkable and I wasn't there I was kind of following it online because I, I don't watch on the TV because Do you know? I know well I can't bear the commentators for a star <laughs> they just drive me mad awful so I either and it's difficult to watch it on mute because you can't hear the ball being hit so why do the commentators annoy you? Because they'll say things. I suppose it's difficult. Not only are you feeling you're in mum role, but you're also as a tennis expert and pro. You're yeah. thinking, no, you got that wrong, mate. Yeah, you're talking rubbish. <laughs> and don't you dare criticise my boy. <laughs> yeah. Penny, what have you done with the ball? Penny, uh, what does that mean? Can I say, Penny began this walk looking like she'd just come out of a Bond Street hairdressers. <laughs> and now I'm afraid... It's she got looks a bit like more. I don't know if anyone listening remembers The Cure, their lead singer Robert Smith, who was a goth. He had black, wild, <laughs> crazy hair. You look like a goth, Penny. <laughs> we don't want to be near. She's just gone into the filthiest puddle to get the ball. And if she shakes herself anywhere near us, we're going to get really Judy. dirty. I've, wo- I've woken up to worse, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> um, look at her, she's loving it. Penny, you're beautiful, aren't you? She's, she is. She's so a great dog. aren't they? She's a great dog. Interested to know that you know you after we I mentioned this thing about the lost wallet and the passport, and it felt to me that that was quite a significant incident for you because your dad sort of took a bit of a decision that this was stressful, this career. I think it yeah he he said it's too dangerous you know we can't come with you. There was, you know you're really having to travel on your own you're you're looking after yourself you're doing all your logistics you're handling the the money uh, you know you're coaching yourself you're trying to learn yeah. for yourself and he just said look it's it's too dangerous you're not doing it so he kind of took the decision for me um were you disappointed I, I think in a way i was but i think that i think that that happening to me that whole opportunity to try it no infrastructure no assistance no yeah. support out with the family it actually we're all products of our environment so I'm that formed me for sure in later years when I got the opportunity to be come the Scottish national coach because it was all about why shouldn't yeah, the Scottish kids any of us can throw in. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know it's like why shouldn't the Scottish kids have the opportunity and I think that my experience drove me to go yeah Let's create something that if we get fine, talented kids yeah. and they want to try and do it, that we actually have a, a programme or a pathway that can support them to yeah. do it. Yeah, and that was your journey, as it turned out. You yeah. know? And I think it's interesting how you were a, you were a sales... I love this fact about <laughs> you, Mari. You were a sweet saleswoman. <laughs> Absolutely. And you sold chewits, my favourite sweet. Yeah, I did. I worked, for a, I worked for a company called... When I joined it, it was called Cavanum Confectionery, and it had a whole portfolio of different brands. Yeah. And then it was bought out, and it became, changed its name, and it became called Famous Names Confectionery. Yeah. So it had a number of big brands in there. Chewitz was probably its biggest one, and things like Elizabeth Shaw Mint Crisps, um, the, the liqueurs, the Famous Names liqueur chocolates, White Mice, Parkinson's. Oh, Do you remember I Parkinson's? Bags mice. of Parkinson's, or jars of Parkinson's? Yeah, white Mice. Judy. He looks like he's got the proper barber jacket yes absolutely there's um, I mean the, the estate is probably about 500 acres we have the house and we have the square which has five little houses on it and the staff stay in there um it's like and we have an a abbey <laughs> it's like being with it's the nice. dowager duchess 
This I is, love it. If I was you, I'd literally walk here every morning and go, this is my land. This is my <laughs> land. And that's where you met when you were working as a sweets, sweet saleswoman. You met Jamie and Andy's dad there. Yeah, that's Will. right. He was yeah. an, an area manager for yeah. RS McCall's. So I, w I started out as a trainee sales rep and I worked my way up to become a national account manager which basically meant that I handled the, the, the big chain stores like yeah, yeah. what was John Menzies, Woolworths um, and, and that's what I was doing when I went back to work after I had Jamie and when I was just about to have Andy um, I took a redundancy package um, because I didn't think I could do the job. It was too much travelling with yeah. two kids that were yeah. 15 months apart. But it was a, you know, that was <laughs> such a big thing. You give up your job because your car goes with your job. Yeah. And suddenly you've got two little kids and you're kind of trapped because you can't go anywhere. Yeah. So um, it was a big, big And you started change. coaching again, didn't you? Because that was obviously just a passion for you. The tennis never left you, did it? No, I feel I, like you I, were just always being drawn back to it. I always, I always played. I played. I w went to Edinburgh University. I did French and business studies. Um, I played tennis through university. I, one of the big things I went to was the World mm. Student Games in Bucharest in 1981 to play for Great Britain. That was, you know, that's such a massive world event, and that yeah. was just a great experience. And I always played at a club um, in Glasgow. When, once I got my first job, and I was based in Glasgow, so I was always involved in tennis. But how I got into coaching was really. You know, when the boys were very small, we moved back to Dunblane to be closer to my family so that we had some, some practical help from my parents in particular. Yeah. And um, I went and rejoined the tennis club to, to keep myself a little bit active and yeah. discovered there was, you know, still no coaches at the club, nobody really helping the, the older kids that we had. And so I started to volunteer and I, I wasn't a coach. I, I had done a coaching qualification before I went to uni as a means of making some pocket money on the weekends, but I never actually used it because like most students, I found better things to do on the weekends. So I, I started doing a couple of, a couple of hours a week. And um, as more and more parents asked me if their kids could join in, um, I started to trade tennis sessions for childcare. Um, because I wasn't charging anything mm. and so I couldn't afford to pay for somebody to look after the kids and so I I asked the parents to look after Angie and Jamie yeah. in the clubhouse or we had a super park just beside the clubhouse with a duck pond so that was kind of how I got started and I I started to gr grow things at the club you know from teams to competitions and and I started with a parent workforce well, Penny, I'm sorry, but I keep going to throw the ball. This is when dogs are at their most stupid when I love them. <laughs> they think you've... Penny! <laughs> and then she knows because it's not dropped. <laughs> Penny! Whee! I showed off because I was with Judy and I wanted her to think I could throw the ball. That was quite a nice and, and underhand throw. Oh, my God. I'm actually going to cry with happiness. <laughs> um, I wanted to also... So around this time, it was clear that both your boys were passionate about sport in general, actually, and just out, you tried to give them a sense of wanting to be sort of involved in outdoor activities and just throwing themselves into the world, I suppose. That's how I perceived it. I think it was just kind of like second nature yeah. to me to want my kids to have the chance to try all sports the same way that my parents had given to me and my brothers. 
And so when they were very small, they tried everything except, I think, skiing. Yeah. Which, you know, from time to time, they will still cast that up to me that they never got to try skiing. And I went, well, we don't live anywhere near any mountains. Um, I'm sorry, they're pushing <laughs> their luck trying to tell you the hard luck story. I know. My mother never took us to Gestad. <laughs> yeah, or Aviemore even. Yeah. <laughs> Was it clear to you when the boys were younger, you know, you talk about this competitive streak and... Did Andy say something to you like, I don't want to play you anymore, I want to play... We were playing, um, we were playing on the courts at Dunblane and it was me and my mum and Andy and Jamie and Andy just chucked his racket down one time and said, I'm fed up playing with you, you and my gran and my brother and I want to play a proper game, you know, because they knew how to keep the score. How they old could, was he then though? He was about five or six. And, and, you know, proper balls, playing on a big court. I mean, you know, and he could control the ball well. He could do little serves. He could keep the score. So in, if, in his mind, he was yeah. ready to play what he saw on the TV. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and that's when I started to look at, well, actually, the local leagues in our area are under 14s. Yeah. And there are no competitions um, under tw there's under 12 mm. but what do you do when you're very little what do you play in yeah and there wasn't anything back then so i started uh, i set up a competition for under 10s and i called up a few coaches that i knew around the country and said do you fancy bringing some of your kids yeah. to dumblane for the day we'll have a great big fun tournament for under 10s and all the older kids at our club kept the scores for them and everything, helped to organise all the parents, the mums particularly, were in the cafe and yeah. running treasure hunts and all the all the things that, so that the kids didn't get caught up with the winning and the losing. Yeah. That as soon as they finished, whoever had kept the score for them took them off to play water bomb fights or football or table tennis or dominoes or yeah. <laughs> whatever. So that the whole day was just a great big fun day out because You've got your first experience of anything has to be enjoyable. And so often with kids, when it comes to competition, if it is a case of you lose, you go home. And that's all you remember. I mm. lost, I went home. You know, whereas this was come for the day, you'll get lots of, lots of little matches, win or lose. Nobody really cares who's winning. This is all about just learning how to compete and, and creating a fun environment. And that's always been my thing with, and I, I think I learned it really from my own kids that if it's fun, they want to come back or they want to do it mm. again. And so my whole philosophy around coaching has been about creating games and activities that do the teaching for you so that kids learn through play, they learn naturally. And yeah. it's not, I mean, I learned so much from my children. The biggest thing probably was that they actually don't want to listen to you and they certainly don't want to be taught by you, right. but they do want to play with you. Yeah. So get out there and play. Yeah, <laughs> and play. be practical. I think when Andy first started his profile started sort of, you know, going skyrocketing. And suddenly you found yourself in the players' box at Wimbledon, the family, you know, area. And there, the eyes of the media were on you. And there was a sort of narrative of you being competitive and pushy and photographs of you punching the air. I think it was only one that you pointed out once about how it's because we're used to seeing women in a passive spectating role mm -hmm. in sport. And would you have been treated in that way if you'd have been a dad punching the air? 
Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think um, for sure, you know, around that time in 2005 when I think the whole family was sort of catapulted into the limelight. Andy, obviously, the, the most quite understandably and quite rightly, but the rest of it's us more as by accident or collateral damage. Collateral, <laughs> colla I love that collateral damage. That's exactly what it was. You can use that on Andy when you're having an argument. Collateral damage. I love that. God, why did I never think of that over all these That's years? That's your next book. Collateral damage. <laughs> yeah. So we were the collateral damage. But you know, because it was unexpected, he had just turned 18. He was in on a wild card, and suddenly he's yeah. playing on Middle Saturday in Wimbledon in front of. James Bond. I mean, for goodness sake, that was just such a huge thing for me. Oh, Daniel or Sean? Sean. Sean. I mean, Sean. Honestly, that was just... I you mean, said that as if, don't say any other dirty words, it's Sean. There is a Connery suite, can I say? Yeah, there is. In the uh, uh -huh. And I a Ferguson it. suite. The two great white Scottish knights, oh, Sir Alex and Sir Sean. Oh, I thought it was Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... I mean, that, that third round that he played at Wimbledon that year, mm. you know, Sean Connery was sitting to my left in the, in the <gasps> royal box. And I just remember thinking, I can't believe Andy's playing on the centre court. He's playing David Nalbandian, who's number four in the world. Yeah. And we never were expecting anything like this. And James Bond is watching. And I was like, oh, this is just... Whoever thought this would happen in their life? Anyway, you know, but then you... I had realised during the course of that week at Wimbledon that the nature of tennis is such that... If you have 20, 25 seconds between each point and you have 90 seconds at the end change yeah. and it's on BBC, there's no ad breaks. So the commentators and the cameras, they need somewhere to go. So of course they go into the crowd and they go into the player box a lot and they talk about the people in the player box. So we all found ourselves being picked out and speculated on because nobody really knew anything about us. And I realised from what I saw in the papers that the pictures that were used of me were almost all ones where I was baring my teeth or pumping my fist and looking like some kind of over-competitive nightmare parent. So I think the media painted me in that way and I could completely understand why anybody seeing those pictures would think, wow, she's over the top, it's too much. And it's like, I'm only doing that if it's a really great shot or a really great point or whatever. But you could be forgiven for thinking I was doing it every single point from the, well, the way that it was you could portrayed. Be forgiven, Judy, I think, and I do link this to there was a controversy recently with the American women's football team that they were accused of being unsportsmanlike when they were seen celebrating goals. And I do think, genuinely, that it's an unconscious bias people have towards women celebrating themselves you know the mother you're the mother in that role yeah do you know what you mean and you have to play the role of the mother and the mother sits there and smiles and is passive yeah and i i suppose i found that a bit sad that that's your son's victory and you can't just <coughs> be yourself you know and do react how you want did it make you think right i better not was it like a wake-up call in terms of how you should be in the <coughs> in the box well or? i think th i think you're right i think you know, I, it, did, it did occur to me that if I was the father of sons or even the father of daughters or the mother of daughters, yeah. that you wouldn't have been picked out in the same way. I think there was a lot to do with the fact that I had sons and I was a woman. So it was almost like something wrong with being a competitive woman or a woman involved in coaching at the top level of sport.
Oh, Penny, there's a van coming. Let's move over, Penny. Let's go over here, Penny. Now, okay, let's just say something about this. Because what is this, this, Judy? This is like a great big old tin shed. And when I came all those years ago to look at the place and look round the grounds and everything, and they took me to see the fishing loch and this stored farm machinery, and they said, this used to be the indoor tennis court. And I said, you are kidding me. There was an indoor tennis court in there all those years that we were growing up down there and playing in the snow and the rain and everything. And that was there and it was an indoor. And when he opened the door of it, you could see the lines. Of course, it's full of machinery. Yeah. But the, and the lines are all old and all the rest of it. And I was going, oh my word, I would have given anything oh. for a cover over something if I'd known that was there. And I, that, that was a little bit of a sign for me. I was thinking, it's yeah. a sign it's going into a tennis court. So anyway, it's just a shed. Andy. Andy, we're behind you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't believe this. It's got a, it's One got thing that I was, I've been conscious of since just the 24 hours I've been here, getting the cab from the station and chatting to people, there seems a lot of affection for the Murrays. And that's not always the case, you know, when someone does that well. And I really got the impression that something one of the drivers said to me yesterday which hadn't really occurred to me before, which I found quite touching, was the idea that obviously people associated Dunblane with something tragic and that you'd sort of turned that narrative around a bit. People don't, don't think then. of Dunblane to do with a tragedy now. And I wondered whether that had been part of Andy's idea with this place as well. Yeah, I think it, it's... I think that the success that the boys have had over the years has brought a massive excitement and pride to the town. Yeah. And, you know, it is lovely that people associate Dunblane with something really positive. And, um, I'm following you, Jim. Yeah, we'll go yeah, down there. Yeah, no. good. Now, this could, be, this could be the postman. It is the postman. Oh, hello, postman. <laughs> I think that's when you know when you're out and you're walking yeah. in the middle of nowhere and you see the postman you realize the you know like my brother's a postman but oh. you realize you know it's not all just about the big cities that's that's a big thing to have to drive out into the country to deliver the is mail your brother and still everybody postman? gets serviced by it yeah he is you see if i was your brother i'd have said come on give us the money jude <laughs> i'd have given up work he's uh, he was a golf pro actually and really? uh, he worked in he worked in America for a number of years at a big club over there and then he decided to come back with his wife mm. because my mum and dad were getting a bit older he wanted to spend more time with them he'd been yeah. away for a long time and you know he came back over here and discovered that you know jobs in golf over here are quite difficult now yeah. because you know you don't get so much now 12 months of the year jobs so look at Penny she looks like <laughs> Where so are you going? dramatic it's like Heathcliff on the <coughs> moors she looks like do you seem quite a resilient person Judy you've had to go through a lot I think your attitude has always been right you pick yourself up you move on you know you deal with it and I felt when you you've spoken about Don Blaine you've been very dignified about it and I can't I can't believe what you went through and I can't believe how strong and how you cope with that but I think that's the same it feels like a resilience you've you've sort of given your boys in a way yeah maybe I think um you know, it's like I said before, we are all products of our environment. You're so much shaped by the people that are around you, the 
opportunities that you have, the experiences that you that you gain over the years, they, they all shape you in some sh in some way. Yeah. And I think that <coughs> you know when the tragedy happened in Dunblane, of course, was the most incredible shock to all of us and so difficult to comprehend. And how on earth did something like that happen in our little town? But, you know, I had, I had friends who lost their children. And, you know, for me, it was like, you've got to grab life. You never know what's around the corner. I was so fortunate to have my kids. Um, I bet you never forgot that moment when they said they're okay. Oh, no, and then you felt like that you, you're so relieved because we were hours before we knew what had happened. So we're all of us, all the parents at the school gates, not knowing. And then you feel guilt because... So it was... I mean, it, it's, it was 1996. It was a long, long time ago now. No, nobody ever forgets it, but without question, it, it shaped all of us mm. who were involved with it but you know for me it was about cre creating opportunities initially for the local kids and then for yeah. the Scottish kids and just if you wanted to do something just go after it just go after it because you literally don't know what's around the corner so I was fascinated by the fact that it wasn't that long after that that Andy and Jamie both had opportunities to go away from home yeah and, and a lot of parents would have been forgiven for being protective then mm. and for saying, no, you're, you're staying here. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was incredible that you did the opposite. What, what do you think, what allowed you to be able to, to let them go as it were? Well, I think that it, it is the opportunity and it's being able to take advantage of the opportunities or when they present themselves. And, you know, I think with the, with the tennis world you kind of get used to your kids particularly when you're in Scotland it's a, tennis is a British sport so you know from the time that they got involved in GB training camps or representative trips you have long distances to travel and mm. you have to you get used to letting them go with other coaches and taking advantage of these opportunities so you know in in that sense it was you know if you get the opportunity and it's what you want to do you go and you go and try it you know if, if it doesn't work out you you come back or you you stop you stop doing it but yeah um you know i think when jamie went uh, he went down south to train when he was 12 and he went that, to cambridge didn't he yeah and that turned out to not be a good experience for him i think that everything that we were promised um about that move didn't materialize and that was very disappointing to me and it, mm. it really kind of taught me not to trust any what anybody says they're going to do for your child you will always be the person who yeah has their best interests in, at, at heart and will care for them and look after them through the, the good times the not so good times it's the unconditional thing so i learned a lot from that um experience and when andy went to barcelona he was 15 so and he had made up his mind because of a conversation with Rafa Nadal at a junior that tournament. That was his mate, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it was Rafa who told him all about his training regime in Mallorca and hitting with Carlos Moya, who was world number one at the time, and training on clay and sunshine and not Were going to like, school. Were you like, thanks Rafa, do you know how much yeah. this is going to bloody cost me? <laughs> we owe Rafa a lot, because Andy came back from that trip that he was on, that Rafa was on, and said, I'm, you know, I need to do more, I'm not doing enough, I've just got you and my brother at the university, and... <laughs> We need to do a little bit more. And oh, Judy! So I was like, mm, OK, OK. It's like, I don't want to play against you and Grant. So, but what I'm saying is, 
a lot of parents, understandably, especially given what you've been through, would have felt the need to cloister their kids away and protect them and mm-hmm. say, you're not leaving my sight again. And I think there is... I know we would have been forgiven for doing that, but ultimately, I suppose, that's more, that would have been more about you than your kids, wouldn't it? And actually, I just think that's quite extraordinarily selfless and forward-thinking of you to think, actually, the best gift I can give them is to allow them to experience life, essentially, well, not be frightened of it, you know. Yeah, but it is that thing, isn't it? You give them wings so they can fly. And, uh, you know, that's what we should do with our kids. I mean, the world nowadays, it, so many parents are just overprotective. And it's like you're... Do you think so? Yeah, oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, oh, totally. I mean, we all learn from our mistakes, but so often we're not letting kids make mistakes. We're not letting them fall. Don't go there, you might slip. Don't do it. If they slip, they won't do it again. They won't go on that icy bit again. You know, it's like, just going to let Penny back in the car because I think... Penny, you're going back in the car? I think she's knackered. Have you lost your tennis ball? Where's your tennis ball? <laughs> How did that happen? Come you go on. Then. We've put Penny in the car. <laughs> I'm just going to open the window for her because she was going to get all sweaty and this is my dad's car and it's like... I love your dad's car. This yeah. is Judy's okay lawn, can I just say? I'm it's a bit of a bumpy. That's the only thing I can do, Judy. <laughs> I don't think this is too good at the moment. It's too, it's too bumpy. Um, but yeah. And there's a giant chest set as well, which yeah. I love. And a sundial. So I know also people always talk to you about, this makes me laugh, your reaction. I mean, we were talking earlier about the sort of, you know, you being portrayed as this uber-competitive mum, but actually what's so funny is I like it whenever Andy's interviewed and he says, oh, sometimes I have to say to my mum, don't do that, don't react like that. And you said some hilarious things about Andy and Jamie's grandparents, your parents, yeah. Roy and Shirley, yeah. because they do things like hand out shortbread during... <laughs> they do. Matches. Yeah, my mum my always brings shortbread, you know, to the Davis Cup. If she comes down for a Wimbledon final, she'll always bring a tin of shortbread and... You know, there was one, uh, the Wimbledon final against Raonic in 2016, and Andy went two sets up. And they, obviously, my parents started to visibly relax and think that that was it, job's almost done. Um, and they started handing around the tin of shortbread, and my, it came my way via my brother. And I just looked at him with my death stare and said, this is not a picnic it's not over yet. And I mean, I've been through so many years of it. It's yeah. never over till the last point. You never yeah. know what's going to happen. And you never relax. But, Don't you? Oh, God, no, never. And, but you also realise that your family and friends don't go through it in the same way that you do, so they don't feel it in the same way, and that's not their fault. That's just mm-hmm. the way that they are. But I'm in a nightmare watching because nobody wants to sit beside me. I don't speak to anybody. I'll tut at you if you comment or, or tut or shake your head, if you're chewing gum or crisps or you're sniffing. or I, I Just everything annoys me, so it's like, just really? don't sit beside me. So I don't want to sit beside anybody, and nobody <laughs> wants to sit beside me. Although you were, I think I saw you, I went to the 2012, I remember seeing you milling around and you were so sort of charming to people and polite and that was obviously, that was beforehand, I don't know what happened afterwards because <laughs> that was the year Andy narrowly missed out on it which was, which was devastating. Yeah. But, um, and he showed a real vulnerability I thought and actually I noticed that 
that must be hard for you sometimes as a mum. There was a press conference he did recently, and you know when he was being asked about whether he, he could, hadn't decided whether he was going to be able to carry on because of this debilitating injury. And I started crying when I was watching this documentary. Yeah. There was a press conference. All these journalists were sitting there. And he just welled up and had to leave. He was crying. And I sort of thought, I just want someone to go over and put a, an arm around mm. him. Why are you just looking at him? It was like, do yeah. you find that hard as a mum? Well, th those are really difficult, difficult situations because he, you know, he has to deal with them. They're, mm. they're incredibly tough. I mean, all tennis players have to give press conferences, yeah. win or lose, after every match or else you get fined. Right. So you kind of get used do to you? doing it. Yeah, yeah and the, the tough is, of course, they're easy to do when you win. Yeah. And when you've lost something major or, you know, something in really tough conditions, the last thing you want to do is be grilled by journalists on how you feel and what went wrong and all this sort of stuff. You just want to go away and be on your own. Yeah. And so it's really, it's really tough. And that's when, you know, the, the emotional support that you get from family and friends, that's when things like that kick in, in the yes. tough times. Yeah. Because your team are always, they're employees. <laughs> and it's not quite the same, you know, whereas like that 2012 final you know I'm sitting watching from the player box and you just want to go down there and just make the stop just get him off there um and yeah the same at the press conference I wasn't there you know it's just his team that was there and I thought this is incredibly tough for him he is realizing this could be the end of his career this is like awful for him somebody help him you know go and and you know a huge credit to him you know he went off he composed himself and he went back in and he dealt with it and then he came back out and he fought, he fought his match and then he tried to find a solution again, you know, mm -hmm. a kind of last chance to, solution to the, to, to hopefully solve the, the injury problem. I mean, he's yeah. got just the most incredible resilience um, and determination to get the best out of himself. <laughs> well, talking <laughs> of which, I want to talk to you finally about um, your Strictly appearance, mm. because I thought that was a real rebirth of Judy that because I feel we've talked about this earlier this slight way you'd been portrayed a bit in the press I feel as the kind of pushy competitive you know mother and actually I was thinking it was interesting I was thinking before you arrived here I thought it's like people only ever saw you at very heightened moments of stress in your life so it's a mm. bit like if you only saw someone the 10 minutes before they went into a job interview or before while well, they were waiting for their wife to give birth, mm -hmm. you'd think, oh my God, they're so stressed. And they're so... And I loved Strictly because I felt it gave you a chance just to be show the playful side yeah. of you. you yeah, know? yeah it, was, um, it was a great thing for me. I mean, one of, one of the best experiences in my life, without question. And it was so great to do something for myself. It'd been such a long time since I'd done anything for me that wasn't tennis related or, yeah. or, or something to do with the, the boys careers and uh, I absolutely loved it you know just the chance to step into somebody else's world see how one of your favorite programs on the TV was made and, and be part of it and learn a new skill meet so many different people from completely different walks of life that you never would have got yeah. to know in that way you might have met them to say hello hello at something but you know when you stay in something like that for a reasonable amount of time you make some really great friends and that's been one of the best things for me about it. I made some great friends from that experience but it was um, I hadn't really quite in my excitement to want to do it for the fun of it 
I hadn't quite figured on the terror of performing something that you're rubbish at in front of a live audience. And you got you to Blackpool, Julie, I'm not having I that. I know, I know. Eight and weeks, girl. Eight <laughs> weeks. Come on. Yeah, and you know, every week we would be bottom, second bottom or third bottom and Anton would kind of nudge me when we were upstairs in the Claudatorium and say, they got it upside down again, partner. <laughs> <laughs> what did the boys say when you said you were going to do it? Well, they Yours were, boys. They, I think that um, I was so excited about the opportunity, but you know, like with everything in our lives, every, everything that we do kind of impacts on each other. So cool. I thought, so you right. had to think, look, I'm going to run this past you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll ask them what they think. And uh, so mm -hmm. I took the easy option and yeah. uh, I asked Jamie first. <laughs> and uh, he, sa he said, oh, mum, he said, you'll love that. You love Strictly. Do it. You'll, you'll have a great time. Bless him. And then I, I said to Andy and he went, he looked at me for a few seconds and then he went, oh my God, you'll be rubbish. And the funny thing was they were both right because I loved it and I was rubbish and I didn't care. I didn't care. And people used to say to me all the time, you know, what was it like when Craig was like being really nasty to you? And, and I said, you know, because I watched the programme for so long, if Craig had said something nice to me, I would have felt shortchanged. So I said, I just saw it all as part of the show and I knew I was rubbish. I didn't. It didn't yeah, bother me, yeah. somebody saying that. And it is, for me, it was all about the fun. I wasn't doing it for any other reason. So I, I loved every minute of it and I had the best partner. For me, I had the best partner because he just he just made me laugh all day long. And, and he approached it, he always struck me, I think if I ever went on that, I'd like him because it's approaching it with wanting, with a playfulness. You know, I also thought it was lovely just seeing you, because I also got a bit upset when I read about how just when you first started um, having to do those sort of... Hello. Morning. Hi. <laughs> Judy's greeting the guests. It's not a Downton Abbey moment. The staff, I thought the staff would be all lined up to meet her this morning. Um, but no, you said you, there was a story you mentioned and I felt really pissed off on your behalf, which was when you were going up to accept an award for Andy early yeah. on in his career and a comic there was a stand-up and he said something about your outfit didn't he yeah what did he say he said um you'd hit back at him or something yeah it was it was the scottish sports awards and it was 2004 so it was the year that andy won the us open juniors so the, these awards were in december i'd never been at an awards thing in my life before and andy was doing his off season i think in south africa that year and he wasn't around and my common sense was saying somebody needs to go and pick it up on his behalf you don't just say thanks very much and not turn up so i went and i went with my dad and i didn't understand that it was a black tie event and therefore uh, you know everybody was in the dicky bows and the long dresses and the loads of bling and diamante and all the rest of it and we had, had no money in those days and I didn't even own a dress. So I had gone out and I had a, a, a kind of mid-length denim skirt that I had and I went out and I bought a jacket and I remember it very clearly because it was a kind of a green cord, short jacket, Marks and Spencers and it was 29.99, which at the time was a fortune to me. And uh, I was wearing a pair of black boots that weren't particularly new. And I remember walking into this thing and realizing I was completely underdressed and I completely had no clue. And then I thought, 
okay, well, I'm here, we need to get on with it. And Andy's award was in the second part of the show, which gave me the whole first part of the show to study what was going on, to know where I had to walk up to. And by that stage, I had got a feel for what the presenter, who was a comedian, the way that he was talking to the guests. And it was predominantly a male audience because it's, it's sport. And I thought, you know, he's taken the mickey out of most people. I've realised that he's a Motherwell fan. I'm realising that there's a huge football crowd in here. And when I went up to, to get it, I thought, he's bound to say to me, when's he going to win Wimbledon? Because that's what everybody is saying to me since he won the, the, the Junior US. And so I went up and, of course, he, that was the first thing that he said. He said, well, never mind this. He said, uh, never mind the US Open Juniors. When's he going to win Wimbledon? And I was ready. And I said, well, I think he has more chance of winning Wimbledon than Motherwell do of winning the UEFA Cup. And everybody started laughing. And, of course, it was a mistake because he sort of looked me up and down and said, could he not have bought you something decent to wear then? And I just wanted to die. I just wanted to get me off here and I'm never coming to anything like this again because it was, you know, 500 people in the room, heavyweight Scottish sports people, and he made me feel like so small. And, you know, one of the biggest things for me in my line of work, coaching and teaching is, you know, the importance of making people feel good about themselves. Whatever age, stage, background they are, if you make them feel good about themselves, you, you know, you can get a change in behaviour, you can get a change in performance, but, you know, that's the best thing you can do. But if you make someone feel bad about themselves, and I just, I wanted to get off, and then, you know, you had to go off and you had to get pictures taken, I went back to the table, and I said to my dad, I just want to go home, I just want to go back, and he said, you're going to have to wait until the end. And we did, and you know, from that moment on, I, it, it made me question everything about, I never want to go anywhere where I will be judged on my appearance, and I still am a bit like that. I'm a bit better at it now. Strictly actually helped me a lot with Your that. Your confidence, yeah. With the confidence, but also understanding how to dress, because the makeup and the wardrobe um, and the hair people, they showed you how to get the best out of yourself. I mean, they could transform you because they knew what they were doing. And I learned a lot from that, about what colors suited me, what cuts, what, what shapes, what lengths how to use makeup better not that I wear makeup very often but and that helped me a lot but that that cut incredibly deep with me and it, it's also another reminder of how easily women are judged by what they look like in a way that men aren't and uh, so I, you know when I, I do a lot of work on women in sport and women in leadership and empowering women and motivational talks now and I never ever thought I'd be able to do anything like that and you know, when I do it, I, I talk about that, you know, the minute we step up, we have to be excellent because we are so quickly judged that unless we're excellent in our field, you're too easily shot down if you make one little mistake in a way that guys often aren't, you know, so. I feel what happened there is that you were being punished because you got a laugh at his, yeah. because you, kept, you fought back. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> what is meant to happen in that situation is you're meant to play the role. Let's have a laugh at the mum. Yeah. And then you came back and he didn't like it. So <clears throat> what he decided to do was reduce you by just focusing on how you looked. Yeah. And it's so interesting because you couldn't say that to a man because they all wear the same thing. But it's that thing of being on display. And what makes me so happy is that man sitting at home, um, probably in a tracksuit with stains on it, watching you on Strictly in all your sequins, owning it like a boss. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But I think also it's um, those moments are interesting because you can you could have hidden away after mm. that, and that tells me a lot about you. But I wonder if you stored that away, and I think that competitive Murray spirit comes out, which is 
I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, like everything. It's, um, you know, you learn from everything. And I'm still like that. I mean, I did a, I did a talk yesterday, a speaking gig for a, a, a company, and because it was a business, and I stayed and spoke to them afterwards, and I said, did you get out of it what, what you wanted? It was an in-conversation thing, which is a nice thing to do. Your personality mm. can come across more. You can tell your stories. You can have fun. Um, but I'm so used to speaking to sports audiences or coaches and whatever, and I know what I'm speaking about is of interest to them well, on a business level. Of, well, of course, tennis is a business, and they were they seemed to be so thrilled with um, with with what I had done. And I was saying, you know, have you got is there, is there anything I could have done better? Is there and they were like, no, you know. But that's me. I mm -hmm. always, I mean, even when I do tennis sessions, I still I'll go back in the car and I'll think I forgot to do that. I could have done that. I'm always evaluating what I've done and looking for how I can do better. And Andy and Jamie are exactly, they're exactly like that. They analyze everything to death and what, but I think it's just the way that we've always been. I've had to learn everything for myself because there was never anybody to learn from in the tennis world because nobody had done anything like that mm. up here. So it was always go out and find out for yourself, find people to learn from and, uh, and do it your own way. And I think that a lot of that experience for me has formed what I now do, yeah. which is I teach people how to teach tennis. I coach coaches how to coach better. I share everything that I learned over 30 or so years of coaching mm. by helping to build a bigger workforce, but particularly a female workforce, because there was never anybody to encourage me, support me, open doors for me. I had to do it all myself. And now I try to do that for other women. So it's the product of your environment thing again and it's also the giving back because for me it's it's a huge thing that we should all give back mm. to something that has given us so much i am a supporter of women and i you know having come from being you know quite shy never want to put my hand up or never want to speak up don't ask me sing in front of the class <laughs> or, you know never would have done anything like that and i can go and stand in front of thousands of people and talk you know present or and I don't even think about it now I don't get nervous about it because I've done it a lot but to get to that stage you need to first step out of your comfort zone and going to do strictly was stepping out of your comfort zone it certainly was on the Saturday night when you had to perform it the rest of it was all great fun but the comfort zone on a Saturday night was terrifying and it only lasts 90 seconds but I did that with the speaking thing in 2010 I did my first speaking thing in front of a thousand coaches in Mexico terrified mm. three days hardly slept just nausea awful and after I'd finished I don't think it was all that good but I survived it you get a confidence from surviving such a Murray I could have done better I could have done, be done better I know I, I could have done Andy better was that after he won Wimbledon he was probably worrying <laughs> about a shot in like look it's off. my family who's this this is my brother Neil Hello, brother Neil. and my sister-in-law Tracy no, uh, well, no Keith's the golfer oh it's well, Keith I the golfer golf hello I'm Emily so tell me something about Judy as a child please oh <laughs> he can't remember, he's too young. Yeah, he was too young. I was 20 she years younger. Up. Than her, so <laughs> she did that for you whenever your brother was bullying. That's right, yeah. She did she? Yeah. Yeah. Neil was the youngest. That's where she found the first fight. Would you describe her as a strong woman? Yes, Oof. yeah. And particularly strong when she was belting the back of a calf with her tennis racket. That was, that was a strong movement. <laughs> oh, it's so nice to meet you. Do you know, I. If you could arrange for me to maybe live here, I'd yeah. be really grateful. Yeah. I don't want to go yeah. back. I love Judy. <laughs> I'm obsessed by her. And I want, I'd like the little lodge. Okay, right. Just as fine. you come yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the gatehouse here. Yeah. well with eviction so far, so... <laughs> <laughs> I don't 
nice. Your family just pop in. You've got your family's very important to you, Judy. I can tell. Yeah. Well, they, Neil and Tracy and the twins, they have a little um, cockapoo called Connie. So Connie and Penny come and walk up here together with my dad yeah. when they're working. Um, so they come up, walk the dog. Beautiful day. Walk the dog. Go in, bacon roll coffee or scones and coffee. They make wonderful homemade scones. So it's just. It's just nice, and it's it's quiet. So it's quite quiet, quiet camp. It's quite a small hotel. So yeah. I've made I've joked about the Downton Abbey thing, but can I say you turned up in your dad's car? Yeah, which is lovely, but it's not like a big old range. It's oh not good, no. And it's covered in dog hair and it's sheets old there. Way, no. I'm going to not. Gonna. Yeah. And I love that because it just seems like um, I realise now, having met you, maybe what the secret to this whole family success is, which is. It's sort of just um, not buying into all that world in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That it's just, it's a job. Yeah. And you do yeah, your best, but... And you just, you, we've all just had to learn to adapt. Our world has had to change around us because of what the boys have done and the successes that they've had. And you either, I think you either shut yourself away from it or you adapt to it. And I think... I mean that's that's what we have all done, but we've n none of us have lost our roots, no chance. Um, Andy still sulks when uh, Judy takes him on a shopping trip to buy a handbag. <laughs> I saw that on your Instagram. But you know what? At least what he was came he doing? With was me. he sulking? <laughs> he was just sitting down, going, oh, "Hurry up!" You know, like. <laughs> but you know, it was great because I said, "Do you want to come to the silk market?" And he went, not really. Where was this? But this was Beijing. In Beijing. And it was lovely. So, you know, we went and it, you know, it's so often you go to tennis tournaments and you see the hotel, the airport and the yeah. tennis centre. And actually there's so much to see in the cities, but you need to make the effort to go and do it. And I think a lot of the players don't make the effort and they, you know, they'll look back and they'll go, I visited all these countries, I never saw anything. So, you know, I was there and, uh, and, and I said, do you fancy coming to the silk market with me? And, it, and it, he was quite funny, he just, he just went, well, not really. And then he went, well, what is it? And when I explained to him what it was, he went, oh, all right then. And actually he was really interested because once he got into the haggling, he was loving it because it was a competition. I can imagine, was he <laughs> haggling at the silk Oh yeah, he was absolutely he loving it. You know, and they're saying, <laughs> You know, it's whatever this bag is, it's it's however much. And he said, mm, no, I'm not sure. No, I'll leave it. We'll, we'll go and see if we can find it somewhere else. No, 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 no. You know, and then he'd come back and he'd go, mm, well, maybe 800. This is Chinese money, not pounds. And yeah. then he goes, nah, I think it's probably worth about four. And they go, oh, no, 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 I lose money on four. You give me five, you give me, mm, I'll give you 450. He was loving it, you know. He was just thriving on the challenge and the wanting to win, of course. Or rather than not wanting to lose, probably. Did it was you get fun. the bag, Judy? Yeah, we got the bag. That's your Christmas present. <laughs> He'll think that's that's done now. Your mum's <laughs> taken care of. Judy, I cannot tell you how I've loved meeting you, but I've also loved this experience of being at Cromlicks, and it's a really beautiful place. It's just there's something very special about this place. Well, you've got a gorgeous day to see it because the sun's shining. I, I mean, the last three days has been absolutely pouring with rain, horrific, windy as well, and. You know, I mean, this is Scotland at its finest. You know, we've got the chickens down there are cockadoodling for you, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's gorgeous, and we we're very very lucky. Judy, can I give you a hug? Of course, please? of course. I mean, Thanks for you. coming up. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we should say bye, Penny. Is Penny sleeping it off? She will be. Oh, she, uh, she's just sitting. Stay, Penny. Please don't take me out again. I'm knackered. <laughs> <laughs>
I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.